We're looking at Romans chapter 6 through 8 for a little bit here, and this passage that Christopher, one of our, our newest elders, just read for us, contains a number of contrasts. Just as you let your eye fall down the page, verses 15 through 23, there's a lot of contrasts, but it's really two big idea, main contrasts, and that's where we're going to spend our time. We could get really detailed in this particular text. We could spend weeks in this passage alone. Many pastors from yesteryear and I guess today as well would do that, but we're going to stay with two big idea contrasts as our focus this morning. The first one, I'll just give you these two and then I'll say a few things about them and then we'll get into them, but the first one in this passage is between slavery to sin and slavery to God. Don't trip on slavery as a commended image. Uh, we'll get into why it's fitting to Paul's point. The second big idea contrast in this passage is uh, about outcomes. Paul uses the word fruit. You see it there in verses 21 and 22. He's talking about outcomes, outcomes of ways of life. A sinful way of life, certain outcome, but for the grace of God. Uh, a righteous way of life, certain outcome, because of the grace of God. So we'll talk about outcomes as well. We'll call this a contrast between a shame outcome and a righteousness outcome. So this sermon is about these two contrasts in verses 15 through 23 here. The first one will be the, the contrast between slavery to sin and slavery to God. He also refers to it as slavery to righteousness, slaves of obedience. All of that is working in the same direction. And then the second contrast is between a shame outcome and a righteousness outcome. That'll be our sermon here. Our premise for this series, moving through Romans chapter 6 through 8, is that the doctrine of grace matters. It matters not just to our believing. It matters to the practice of our faith. Grace is here in our passage. I love verse 17. That's a grace note. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The standard of teaching to which we've been committed is the doctrine of grace. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, that is the grace gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There in verse 23, what is eternal life? It's, it's being not just in the life to come in heaven, but life with God now on earth in and through Christ. Eternal life is true relationship with the only true God through Jesus by grace. So if you're looking at the passage, you put verse 23, which I just quoted, with verse 17 above it, and we understand grace to be not just the basis for God's acceptance of us as sinners, Grace is the way the gift of God, true relationship with him, comes to us, verse 23. Grace is also the motivation for our obedience to the God who redeems sinners. This is what it means to obey from the heart, verse 17. Wonderful statement. We're going to get more into this next week. I want to put verse 17 in our passage today. Down in chapter 7, verse 6, will be next week. If you'll just let your eye fall down to chapter 7, verse 6, you'll see a phrase there in chapter 7, verse 6, that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Serving in the new way of the Spirit dovetails with obedience from the heart in chapter 6, verse 17. And so I'm going to table discussion of what obedience from the heart means 
to next week when we get into chapter 7 there and talk about serving in the new way of the Spirit. Obedience from the heart is the other side of that coin. But now that we're in chapter 6 for one more week, remember in our last couple of weeks in chapter 6, I've tried to establish that redeemed sinner. We are redeemed sinners. I tried to establish this is a tension that we live in. Redeemed sinner. You don't get one without the other. Because we're redeemed sinners... We talked about this last week, how we give ourselves neither to uh, the recklessness of sin, nor do we give ourselves to the despair of sin. And if you think I may be putting things too simply, it's not real complex. Our draw to sin is complicated. The effect of sin on us in guilt and shame is complicated. What motivates us to sin is complicated, but not complex. If or when we give ourselves to sin, it is because we're seeking something from sin that we will not locate in our Savior. Bottom line, if or when we give ourselves to sin, it's because we're seeking something for ourselves from sin that we will not locate in our Savior. Now, I'm, I, when I say sin, it, it's easy, especially in an evangelical church, to assume everybody knows what you mean by sin, but we all don't really know that. And so in Romans chapters 1 through 3, which we were in back in the winter, we took a long time, many Sundays, we kept defining and describing sin. And I'm not going to go back through what sin is in detail each week, but notice in verse 19, looking at verse 19, we have two descriptors of sin, impurity, locate that word, and lawlessness. In fact, verse 19 says lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, almost like a compounded uh, kind of, of, of sin in effect. These are descriptors of sin more than definitions of sin. What we find in Scripture are not so much definitions of sin as if sin is something that you know, lives on the page in a, in a book. What we get from Scripture are descriptors of what sin is, what sin does in and through us. One author compiled the descriptors this way. This is really brilliant. He says the Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness, we have that word in verse 19, and faithlessness expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Now, here's his million-dollar statement. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony, both. Sin is disruption of created harmony. Call it the vandalism of shalom. That's what this author calls it. Uh, shalom is a Hebrew word that, that encompasses God's purposes for human flourishing and wholeness. The good design and tension of God is for shalom, our flourishing, our wholeness, but the human propensity is to mess that up. The vandalism of shalom. 
And so his words again, sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. It's crucial that you keep both parts of that statement together. Sin is not just the disruption of created harmony, what God created for good, it is also resistance to his restoration of that harmony. So the descriptors as we have them there in verse 19, look at them again. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just, in other words, he says, I'm putting this really, really simply. There's a lot of complexity or or complicatedness in this, but I'm putting it really simply for you, verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, sin is never satisfied. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. These descriptors, impurity and lawlessness, they get it, our disruption of God's good design. That's the word impurity in verse 19, conveys our disruption. And then the word lawlessness in verse 19 conveys our resistance as well to God's work in us. It's both. And sin always takes more than it gives. Maybe not immediately, maybe not right away, but it always takes more than it gives. We go looking for something for ourselves in sin that we will not locate in our Savior. We won't go to Him for. Sin always takes more than it gives. Again, not immediately maybe, but this is sin's nature because the nature of sin is to take while the nature of God is to give. Now, Paul admits in the passage, he's oversimplifying this. But we kind of need it to be oversimplified. The problem is that when we take an oversimplification and we make it too simple in practice and we forget that there are complications involved in sin, that people are layered, we're not simple beings. And so he says, you know, I'm making this very simple here. You can, you can give yourself to sin or you can give yourself to, to God, but he, he knows it's not that easy. But he's making this big contrast between slavery to sin and slavery to God. Now, applying a slavery image is problematic for us as moderns because uh, to modern mindsets, slavery is an absolute obscenity. Uh, So let's get in now to this, why, why does he use this language? Here's the first of our two big contrasts. If you're taking notes, You can put all this under the contrast between slavery to sin and slavery to God. Think, you know, we wince at that. Does it really have to be slavery? Did he really have to talk about slavery to God? Slaves of righteousness, slaves of obedience. I mean, to sin, yeah, we see that, slaves to sin, but to God? And so what happens is moderns want to read in something that isn't there. We want to say, well, you know, Paul lived in a different era and this different time he lived in, you know, slavery was something more acceptable to ancients like Paul. It wasn't that big a deal uh, to them. If he were writing this today, he would choose uh, another image. Well, let's think about our assumptions, though. It is not true to say that slavery was more acceptable to Paul. The gospel Paul preached dignified the one in slavery's captivity and began toppling the institution the world over. It's not true to say that Paul accepted slavery. That's false. It is true to say 
that in Paul's time, slavery was not race-based or rights-denying as it's been in our nation's history, which makes it a particularly shameful memory, collective memory for Americans, because slavery here was was race-based and it was rights-denying. It was fundamentally dehumanizing. But even where slavery wasn't race-based or rights-denying, like back in the times Paul lived, human beings owning one another has always been a problem. And slavery itself has never led to human flourishing or wholeness under God. And thus, one of the hallmarks of gospel preaching around the world has been the dismantling of institutional slavery because it is fundamentally dehumanizing. Many anti-slavery movements throughout history were, and still are, led by people of deep evangelical conviction. But with this in mind, how can slavery the imagery of slavery be commended to us Godward when it's so problematic manward? You know, is this a case of trying to redeem an image that's just simply irredeemable? It's so susceptible to abuse. Well, the reason he uses the image is because slavery is about ownership. And this is Paul's point. In Christ Jesus, we are owned by God. Now we have to own his ownership of us. That's what sanctification is about. And you get that word sanctification in verse 19, also down in verse 22. But in Christ, we're owned by God. That's why he uses the slavery imagery. Now this chafes at our modern sensibilities, our notions of our own self-concept. Being owned chafes at that. Because as moderns, we like to believe in the myth of the self-made person. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Nobody tells me what to think, especially religious people. I don't know if you saw the story this week um, of the paparazzi photographed Justin Bieber. Well, suddenly some teenage girls just got interested in this message. I love to see the head snap up. Justin Bieber? Did he say Justin Bieber? I did say Justin Bieber. He was in the news this week because he had, uh, he had had a, 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 he's engaged to be married to a girl, and uh, they were photographed in a park crying. And they'd had this, they'd had this fight. And uh, then he was photographed carrying a copy of Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage book. And the interesting thing uh, about the, uh, the story, I mean, if I knew Justin and his fiancée, I would recommend the book to him as well. It's really good to see them reading it. But the way the story was written, and, and I was linked uh, to a British tabloid <laughs> uh, publication which was basically, it was fascinating how the British tabloid covered this because um, it was basically pop star resorts to Christian self-help book that denies same-sex marriage. Isn't that crazy? Um, The presumption being evangelical pastors and the Bible is so regressive Why would somebody like Justin Bieber and his model girlfriend, fiance, why would they go looking there to find anything meaningful for themselves? 
See, Bieber just chose the wrong self-help. Where all the assumption is that we're all self-made people, we all need the self-help because we're going to ultimately all pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're going we're gonna, to, he just, he just chose the wrong self-help. He's going to find it in this crazy New York pastor. <laughs> Say what you will about Justin Bieber. But when he was asked about the moment in the park, when he was asked about his relationship to his fiance, when he was asked about conflict, you know what he said? Here's his quote. It's not real if it doesn't have any bad days. Maybe he'll put that to music, you know. <laughs> it's not real if it doesn't have any bad days. Say what you will about Justin Bieber, but he at least understands that no one will be self-made in marriage. He has seen through that lie. He at least seems to understand he and his fiancé will not save one another, and that is huge. That means they may actually make it as opposed to many other celebrity unions. See, we, we think, we, we believe in the myth of the self-made person. We even think uh, that we think for ourselves. We love that one. No one really does. No one thinks for themselves. That is, no one thinks independently of other human beings. You've never had an original thought that somebody before you somewhere did not always also have. No one really has a mind of their own. But here's the delusion of sin. We do try to think independently of God in sin. And this, Paul says in our passage, says that this is why we're self-enslaved. We're self-enslaving. We're self-sabotaging. Remember Cain? His story went through in the month of June. The, the brothers Cain and Abel back in Genesis. Remember, remember what God says to Cain? Sin desires to master you. It wants to own you. What does he say in verse 16 here, Paul, in chapter 6, verse 16? Do you not know that you, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? In other words, he's saying it's human nature to present ourselves to masters of all kinds. The question is, which master is it going to be? He says the same thing down in verse 19, which we've already read. It's that clause again. You've presented your members. We do present ourselves to, member, to, to masters of all kinds. Sin wants to own you. So does God. And it's not that you cast the deciding vote. Don't think that way about this dynamic. It's not like that. God does for us what sin will not. Sin will not sacrifice anything for you. You might sacrifice a lot for your sin, but it'll never be worth it. Sin only takes, God gives. God in absolute grace pays for us with the blood of his son. And this being true, Paul says, you used to give your, here's the logic of our passage. And we instantly follow the logic. It's the implications. But the logic we instantly get. You used to give yourself to sin because you sought something for yourself in sin that now you're supposed to locate in your Savior who's supposed to, to get more and more and better and better to us as we, as we walk with Him and follow with Him. 
He says, don't live like you're owned by sin when you're really owned by God. Now, again, that's really easy to say. I mean, this is a simple contrast to make. It's very easy to exhort us toward this. We get it. What's the difficulty? It's really hard sometimes to say no to our sin. The difficulty is, as we talked about earlier in the chapter where he says back in verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. We know that the old self dies hard over a lifetime. And sometimes some sins we don't even know we're doing. But it's hard to say no to sin sometimes. Anybody who's honest knows this is true. In fact, Paul will devote the whole next chapter, chapter 7, to how hard it is for us to say no to sin. That it's hard for us doesn't mean we don't, doesn't mean we, we don't have to, we, we do have to. But the instruction in chapter 6 here wouldn't be necessary if not for the fact that we're still drawn to sin. We don't need it. That's part of the argument Paul's making. You don't need it. What are you looking for? There's been times in, in, in conscious sin where I'm, I, I think to myself, what am I looking for right now? What am I looking for? But we still go looking. In that, for ourselves, something. And it never materializes like we, we want it to, but, but here we are still drawn, still drawn. We left things last week on what does it mean to be alive to God. Remember the phrasing in verse 11? We kind of took verse 11 last week. If you look back in chapter 6 to verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God. And we made that a simple contrast. Really, we've, we've stayed conceptual in chapter 6. We've stayed big picture. And we, we talked about uh, what it means to be dead to sin. We also talked, we left it last week on what it means to be alive to God, that phrase in verse 11. And I told you this means not the, we're not Buddhist. This doesn't mean the extinguishing of my desire. God made you with desires, with drives, with loves, with longings. And what has to happen is not that we extinguish our desires as if somehow it's a problem to have a desire. It's not a problem to have desire. It's human You'd be denying a fundamental aspect of being human to try to purge desire from yourself. But what happens is that we have to have our desires, our loves, our longings have to be shaped. They have to be cruciformed is the word that we're using. Shaped by the cross, by the authority of Jesus Christ to rule us by grace because of what he accomplished on that cross. There's nobody's blood for you. Nobody's died for you and, and, and rose again for you, that whole construct, and, and sits at the right hand of God and makes intercession for you even in this very moment. No, nobody else has ever done that for you but him. So last week and, and somewhat the week before, I, I talked with you about the experience of personal defeat in sin. <clears throat> I've tried, I've tried, I've really tried, you know. But I just can't beat this or that particular sin. It's been my sin. It will always be my sin. And, you know, sometimes in that dynamic, it's not that we're 
actually doing the sin, but that the temptation continues to do us. And we can despair over that. It's not that people are necessarily in sin, it's that they're tempted to and they feel the pressure and the strength of the temptation and they despair over experiencing the temptation itself. The temptation to sin may never go away. It may never go away in your life. And even when we're not giving in to whatever sin, we feel the pressure. We, we may be fighting temptation valiantly, availing ourselves of the resources that we have in Christ, and including each other in, in community. But still we get upset with ourselves that the temptation, whatever it is, remains so appealing to us that it keeps pressing on our desires and we feel like we're living in resistance all the time. And we feel it's horrible for that, that we're experiencing the temptation, even though we're not giving into it. We're experiencing the temptation. We feel as horrible for that as if we were giving in. <laughs> the temptation to sin may never go away. What Paul teaches us in Romans 6 is that God's ownership of us is set at our redemption. We are redeemed sinners under the rule of grace. Verse 14, we're not under law, but under grace. We looked at that last week. But it's because it's ownership, it's God's ownership of us, this is why Paul uses the slavery imagery. That we're slaves of righteousness. And we trip on the terminology because we don't like slavery. Well, it actually gets worse from here, y'all. Chapter 12 will call us living sacrifices. That's Paul's image. But what does it convey? It conveys ownership. It conveys death to self. Slavery conjures images of being abused. And yet Paul applies the imagery to us belonging to God, God's ownership of us, which is anything but abusive. But we have to own his ownership of us. See the pronouns here in this passage? You, 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 you. This is not you, you. This is you, us. They're plural. How do we do this? How do we own his ownership of us? Well, we cultivate obedience from the heart. Verse 17, that phrase. And again, we're going to get into this next week, so stay tuned with that. I'm going to table verse 17 to next week to deal with it with chapter 7, verse 6. But there's also something we do to own his ownership of us that we can talk about under our second category for today, and then we're finished. The second big idea contrast in verses 15 to 23 here is between outcomes. A shame outcome and a righteousness outcome, two different ways of life. In this interest, look again at verses 19 and 22 and note the reference to sanctification in both words. This is both verses, key word. You get sanctification at the very end of verse 19, the last word. And then in verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get, the produce, the outcome, leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What is sanctification in this context? Looking at it, it's owning God's ownership of us. Now, one way we do that, we'll talk about it next week, is cultivating obedience from the heart, a whole different motivational structure for why I obey. I don't obey to gain his acceptance or to keep his love. 
I obey from it. That's obedience from the heart. We'll talk about this next week in concert with the new way of the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6. But right now, let's just focus on this. Owning God's ownership comes by applying the righteousness of God to myself continuously. Obedience from the heart flows from this. Applying the righteousness of God to myself continually, also known as preaching the gospel to myself, is sanctification. Why do we need to do this? Because we're going to still experience temptation. Because we're still going to experience shame. Verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Righteousness is not something I come by on my own. It's the gift of God. What does verse 23 say? Eternal life, true relationship with the only true God through Jesus. Righteousness is not something I come by on my own, but I do have to own it. This is the dynamic you're in on. It's not something I come by on my own. I'm given it. But I have to own it, and this is sanctification. Let me draw a distinction that's really important here. It's a distinction between guilt and shame because we always pair them. There's a reason we do, but they're not the same thing. They're not interchangeable. Guilt is tied to an event, an act. I did that. That thing God said, don't do, I did it, I'm guilty. And when God makes me righteous in Christ, he covers my guilt, all of it, past, present, future. It's all covered. There's no more guilt. Chapter 8, verse 1, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What is that? Justification. This passage isn't talking about justification, which is the covering of our guilt. This passage is addressing sanctification, which is the covering of our shame. This is an important distinction to get. Guilt is tied to the event. I did that. I shouldn't have. It was wrong. It wasn't right. I did it. Shame is tied to the person doing the act, me, the one doing the wrong. I not only did that, but I must be a bad person because I did that. I must be a jerk because I did that. Pick your own self-demeaning expletive that you want to put into the phrase for why I did that. A lot can be said about shame. We're not even going to talk about shame as a contagion that guilt is isolated to the individual, but shame spreads, and sometimes it spreads through generations. But just to zero in, as one writer put it, guilt is the wound and shame is the scar. Can you make sense of that? Guilt is the wound, shame is the scar. As Christians, our guilt in the very deepest way of guilt is entirely dealt with when we're made right with God through trust in Jesus. This is Bible calls this justification. Justification is decisive. It happens at conversion. But the process then of applying the gospel to our lives, what the Bible calls sanctification, this is lifelong. And it can be very complicated. It can be very messy. Because what happens with shame is that shame will haunt us long after we deal with our guilt. You deal with the guilt. I deal with this with people where they've, they know that they, they, they have a forensic knowledge of the 
forgiveness of God. I did this. I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't get through the shame. The shame keeps coming back and coming back. And the way that we deal with our shame is by reminding ourselves how God dealt with our guilt. The way we deal with our shame is preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves how God has dealt with our guilt. Yeah, I am guilty. And the only thing that keeps me from shame is that I know God has dealt with my guilt in full. Otherwise, I'll be eaten up with shame. Now, there's practices that go along with this too. Again, next week, we'll talk about obedience from the heart. We'll talk about spiritual disciplines. At the end of Romans 6 through 8, my little in-between series will be on spiritual disciplines. How we develop the grace that we believe in into actual life-changing disciplines. We'll talk about that later on as we get on into the fall. But this is not just about believing something or telling ourselves to believe something until we feel like we do. It's about building our faith. It's developing our faith. It's feeding our faith. Building our resistance to temptations of all kinds. What is sanctification in a sentence? It's the practice of owning God's ownership of me, which means I submit my loves and longings and desires and expectations of life. I submit all of that to Jesus to be ruled by his grace, to be informed by his righteousness. It's a lifelong experience. But note again that verses 21 and 22 here address outcomes. The shame outcome is the scarring. Guilt is the wound. That's the act, the event. I did that. It was wrong. It wasn't right. Guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. Long after the wound heals, the scar remains. See, shame gets into our emotions. It scars our outlook. That feeling of defeat that I've been referencing for a couple of weeks here, that sense people get that, you know... This has always been my sin, will always be my sin, and I can't do anything about it really. That's shame talking. I'm still experiencing the temptation to this. Why am I still experiencing the temptation to this? I shouldn't experience the temptation to this. That's shame. It's shame that results from all those times we gave in, getting upset with ourselves, even for just being tempted to go where we don't want to go, do what we don't want to do, say what we don't want to say, etc. We're feeling the pressure and the pull to sin, even in the temptation. Getting upset with ourselves for having the temptation itself, not just the sin, but the temptation to sin. This is shame. The way we deal with our shame is by reminding ourselves of how God has dealt with our guilt. And there are practices that follow that. There are spiritual disciplines. There are ways that we cultivate our obedience. One of the things I want to drop in right here is the role of community. This seems to be a good place to put it. It's not just about believing the Christian life. It's about developing. The Christian life is about a transference of allegiance. Now, I am owned by God. I'm no longer my own. I was bought with a price. Paul says that elsewhere. But I've got to own his ownership of me. This is sanctification. And so let me say for now, we'll get more into this as sermons follow, the church has a role for you in this. And I don't want to miss saying this to you. One of the things I've appreciated about the recovery community people dealing with addictions, 
is the stress the recovery community puts not just on sobriety, but sober community as essential to sobriety. In other words, their experience has taught them that an addict without a community around him to to help him walk in recovery, he will not walk in recovery. Addiction thrives in isolation. In removing myself from community, well, so does sin. Sin thrives in it too. And so one of the ways that we show ourselves to be owned by God is being in the church, by which I mean not just present on Sunday morning, though that's good, but you've got to get other Jesus-loving Christians you can trust outside of your family. You've got to get them inside your life, and, and you've got to let them get to know you, and you get to know them. It's, it's reciprocal and mutual, and you give them a map to your interior, as it were. I know this is scaring some of us to death, but you allow them to ask you, how are you really doing with sin? And you will tell them honestly, and they will minister to you, not heap condemnation on you. It's, it, it, you know, I, you've probably had this experience. I've had it too. Of Sometimes people ask you in the church, you know, how are you doing? And you kind of give a little... And they go, no, no, really, how you doing? You go, you know, I don't know you. What are you doing this to me for? You know, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can tell you uh, what, what, what I, I can only tell the people that I've really built the trust up with. If you're one of those people who do that, people stop. Right? Remember the old Bob Newhart uh, skit? lady comes to see Bob, all the problems, and he just says, yeah, stop it. What, that's it? Stop it. Just stop it. <laughs> if it were only that simple, Lord. Yeah. And you'll tell on yourself to these people. I call them cussing friends. My cussing friends are my deep friends in Jesus. See, this is healthy, and the reason it's healthy is because it works on neutralizing shame. I may experience the temptation 10 times greater when I go away from a cussing friend. But I, my shame is neutralized because, you know, what, so many, what happens to so many people when they say sin is, all, this, oh, sin is always going to be my sin, it's always been my sin, and I can't really do anything, they don't have anybody they're confessing their sins to. It's a, it's a basic one-another practice in the New Testament. Confess your sins to one another. And I know relationships are not easy for for everybody. They're not easy for me. But people hide. And a big part of our sanctification is coming out of hiding. Not to everybody. Don't do that. If you you go to your Sunday school class next week and go, I'm convicted by Colson. I'm going to tell you everything. Don't do that. Find one or two people you can trust and venture to get to know them. And then at some point say, you know, I've got to have somebody that I can tell my struggles too. It's a big part of sanctification. It's coming out of hiding to, to befriend in Christ people that we can confess to and draw strength from. See, now I know if you've been hurt by the church or you're disappointed with the church or you're burned by the church, this is hard to hear. I know it is. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. But one of the, you know, Paul says that we present ourselves to masters twice in this passage, verse 16, verse 19, the experience of human nature is present ourselves. One of the masters, if we're going to be slaves of righteousness, 
One of the masters we present ourselves to is God's church. Now, if you're a Protestant, you really have a hard time hearing that. Because Protestants love to be spiritually freewheeling. No church will tell me, you know. No church will enforce their membership covenant on me. We love to have our options open and not plant one place and stay there thick and thin, good and bad. But one way we submit to God is submitting to one another in the church. And I tell you, in my own experience, my shame has been lifted many times by brothers who see my sin, who hear me confess my sin to them and love me still. And I know they do. And they don't give me a pass. Sometimes they give me a kick in the rear. But I need it from them because they're men who I've entrusted myself to and I can hear them say, what are you going to do about that to make sure it doesn't happen again? I'll just read you this and we'll be done. This is attributed to Geoffrey Chaucer. I keep this little card on my desk. I don't know that it's really Geoffrey Chaucer. I cannot independently verify, but I know I found it somewhere, and I know where I found it. It was attributed to Geoffrey Chaucer, so here is the English bard from the uh, 14th century. This life so short, this craft so long to learn, our understanding of God, of ourselves, and of the world comes so slowly, so painfully slowly, that life's summer passes and the winter arrives long before this fruit is ripe to be picked, or so it seems. But God is not a quantity that can be mastered, even though he can be known. And though he has revealed himself with clarity, the depth of our understanding of him is measured, not by the speed with which theological knowledge is processed, but by the quality of our determination to own his ownership of us through Christ. Slavery to God through Jesus? Yeah, because he doesn't boss me around sanctimoniously. He doesn't drive us. He leads us. The one who's slaughtering the sheep drives them. The one who's pastoring the sheep leads them. He's patient with us. He's good to us. He treats our guilt like the wound that it is. And he covers our shame, scars with his grace. It's beautiful what he does for us. It's not just a once in a moment happenstance. It's continual. There's only one kind of commendable slavery. We present ourselves to masters of all kinds. It's human nature. Paul tells us this in this passage. But only one will rule you by grace. To the end of eternal life, wherever that is. Only one can own us in such life-giving and life-affirming ways. Sin promises you that. Every sin you're tempted by promises you grace, promises you power, promises you something you think you really want, but it never delivers. Sin always takes. In the short run or the long run, sin takes more than it gives you. God gives because with God, grace abounds. Now, we're going to sing at the end of our bulletin here, a very appropriate song for what we've just been talking about because we need to shout because that's good news. Grace is the best thing you've ever heard about in your life. And so let's stand together and I'm gonna lead us in this.